0: Castle. Sprite Castle, Sprite Castle, Sprite Castle, with Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Defender of the Crown, which was voted as this episode's game by my Patreon supporters, people like Brian Barr, Cobra Kai, and Mike McLaughlin. If you like this show and feel like supporting it and me, head over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and sign up today. Defender of the Crown was published for the Commodore 64 in 1987 by CinemaWare Corporation. It is a game for one player that uses joystick controls. Cinemaware was a relatively new company in 1987. Their first release was Defender of the Crown for the Amiga one year earlier in 1986. Cinemaware as a company promised cinema-like experiences on computers. Some of the other games they released were Sinbad and the Throne of the Falcon, The Three Stooges, King of Chicago, Rocket Ranger, and it came from the desert. Um, it was that final title, It Came From the Desert, that essentially caused the company to go bankrupt. They spent more than $700,000 on the project when tried to release a version for the Turbo Graphics 16. Now, when the company folded, no one was out of a job. Cinemaware was known for its extravagant graphics and music, and all of the the programmers and developers easily found jobs with other companies. Some of them went to Sierra, some went to Electronic Arts, and even Microsoft. The first game that the company released was Defender of the Crown in 1986. And in 2002, they released Defender of the Crown, the digital remastered collector's edition. So this is one of the few companies that released the same game as their first and last release, even though they were different releases. They had other releases in between those two. Uh, In 2005, they were purchased by eGames, and that's when they became Cinemaware Marquee. Of course, the Cinemaware that was purchased by eGames was not the original Cinemaware. They purchased Cinemaware Incorporated, which had been founded by Lars Furkin, who acquired the rights to the name and IP back in 2000. So, uh, the actual company of Cinemaware itself did not exist very long, but it has uh, been reborn multiple times under similar names. In Defender of the Crown, players must take control of one out of four Saxons and attempt to wrestle control of England away from the Normans after the death of King Richard. Defender of the Crown was marketed as an interactive movie. It was originally released for the Commodore Amiga in 1986 and was ported to several other systems, including the Commodore 64 the following year. According to the manual, it is a tribute to all the classic Robin Hood films. And in fact, the manual contains a lot of information about the history of Robin Hood films. So if you're not up on your Robin Hood film history, all the versions dating back to uh, even silent films, you can read all about those in the manual. Now, speaking of the manual and the box, uh, the front of the box has that very classic uh, old parchment look. And on the top, we have the game's title. It says Defender of the Crown. And on the bottom, there's some information that says a Cinemaware production. And then there are several credits that make us think that this is more like a movie than a traditional video game. There are credits for people like the executive producers, the associate producer, who the game was directed by, who was responsible for the computerography, who I'm not even sure what that is, <laughs> and the game's original score. So uh, the starting from the very beginning, the credits really lead credence to this idea that this is more than just a game. This is going to be a movie-like experience. We also have this picture on the front of knights uh, on horses. It's very colorful. It's very busy, to be honest with you. It's kind of difficult to make out all the details and see what's happening. Now, uh, one of the things I found is that Randy McDonald was in charge of the art direction, and he said, uh, for the first I think he did the first three or four cinema games, and he said what they would do or what he would do is go down to uh, Hollywood and rent costumes, and then they would hire models and they would have the models pose in the way they wanted the artwork to look uh, and then use them as a source for the actual paintings and illustrations that they used within the game. the back of the box is really what sells us on the idea that this is more than just a computer game. In fact, across the top, well, uh, the back of the box has a picture that looks like a movie theater. We're standing outside the box office. Uh, We can see where tickets are being sold. There are now playing movies on either side of the box office. And across the top, it says, a Cinemaware interactive movie movie. Of Defender of the Crown, so it doesn't say computer game or anything like that. It says a Cinemaware interactive movie. Uh, the posters on the side both say "now playing" and they have pictures from Defender of the Crown. I believe they're all from the Amiga version. And uh, as you know, there are two common tricks used by software publishers. One is to use the best quality uh, graphics. Uh, you know, whatever version is the best. So if the game is ported to the Amiga, then that's probably the version, the graphics that you'll see on the box. And that is the case here. But the other thing is to shrink them and make them really small because the smaller they get and the closer those pixels get, the better the pictures look. So these almost look like photographs uh in, in some instances on the back on these now playing posters. Now there's a lot of information to sell us on this game written on the bottom of the box. It says cinemaware is adult entertainment, a revolutionary new genre that puts you emotionally into the story and characters. It's more like being in a movie than playing a computer game, popcorn not included. Now we have some information about the game itself. The age of chivalry, a time of lusty winches and black hearted villains. King Richard has been murdered and England thrown into civil war. Amidst the ringing clash of steel and the thunder of charging steeds, the bold Saxon Knights have chosen you to lead them into battle against the hated Normans. Victory will not come easy. To save England, your skills as a swordsman and military leader will be severely tested. But should you succeed, you'll win the crown of England and the love of many a beautiful damsel. Uh, This game was released at a time when games were not advertised or being marketed to boys and girls. (laughs) Uh, You know, first of all, uh, to just, you know, just right off the bat to say, you know, uh, just to throw out in the first couple of terms of your verbiage to refer to lusty winches, um, that might be a turnoff to some people. Uh, and also, you know, as setting one of the game's goals to, uh, to achieve the love of many a beautiful damsel. So it's certainly not a unisex type game, uh, which is unfortunate, but also kind of a reflection of Um, you know, the way that computer games were being marketed during this time, but not, it doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, the, the people that were using computers, um, and not, not to go off on a a side tangent, but there are lots of people that we see today. There are lots of female game developers and female engineers and people that we know grew up playing computer games. And so it's unfortunate that sometimes these games left those people out when they were marketing uh, back to the text. It says, Heart pounding action as you rescue your lady from a foul Norman prison. These are uh, things you could do with the game. Majestic tournaments where you joust for fame, fortune, and land. Heroic battles featuring castle shattering giant catapults. A unique blend of role playing and strategy combined with dazzling arcade style sequences. <clears throat> um. So anyway, then, uh, it says, oh, it says easy control, uh, by your mouse or joystick controls, no typing required. Now, uh, I think this verbiage is actually from the Amiga version because I don't think the Commodore 64 version of this supported the mouse. I would be very surprised, uh, if it did. Um, so again, we've got this idea. I mean, the whole thing that they're pushing with the marketing of this all over the box is that this is more than a computer game. This is a theatrical experience. This is a movie experience. Uh, And that message is continued on the inside of the manual. This is from the first paragraph or a couple of paragraphs Of the manual. It says, We are pleased to present this title as part of our new line of interactive movies, which we call CinemaWare. We think you're going to enjoy it. CinemaWare derives its inspiration from the movies, not other computer games. The result, ideal entertainment for the mature player looking for greater challenges and a more adult experience. Our interactive movies combine sophisticated computer graphics with classic movie themes and characters. Everything from gangsters to Sinbad to medieval knights to space-age warriors. They all feature role-playing and strategy combined with enough exciting arcade-style action to keep you on the edge of your seat. We know we're breaking new ground here, and we'd love to get your reaction to CinemaWare. Your comments, criticisms, and ideas are very important to us. Your voice will be heard. Um, just to point out a couple of things from this text. Um, twice in the first paragraph, it says that this is ideal entertainment for mature players, which is kind of interesting, and then it says for gamers looking for a more adult experience. So I'm not really sure why that was important in their marketing, but I think what they're saying is this is more than just a simple arcade game. Like this is not Pac-Man. This is not Donkey Kong. This is not a game where you're not going to have to read the manual and struggle for two decades to to figure out the best way to play this game. Uh, You know, um, some of the material in the game is uh, mature, and, uh, for adults. So, I mean, that's not, not really the part we think about for defender of the crown, but I think there are parts, um, that, uh, parents might not have enjoyed <laughs> their children's, uh, viewing in this. So it's kind of interesting that it talks about that. And then, um, again, to separate themselves from, uh, you know, typical computer games at the time, it says we get our experience or we get our influence from movies, not from other video games. So again, it's this idea that this is an interactive movie. Um, We've experienced interactive movies in the arcade prior to this game, and they didn't go over so well. So it's kind of a risky angle for them to take. Uh once you load the game up you will come to the title screen. Now this title screen is probably um duly familiar for those of you that are fans of CinemaWare because we've seen it twice. Uh we see this Defender of the Crown logo with the uh, gold letters on a wooden sign that has been attached to a rock Castle Wall. But if you have played Cinemaware's Three Stooges, you know that it also boots up to this exact uh, same screen within a joke where the Three Stooges say, Wrong game, and they slap each other, and then it switches to the Three Stooges intro. So they got double mileage out of this graphic. Um, but right before this graphic is displayed, we see this fading in text that says Cinemaware production, and it just has this presentation. Like we are in a movie theater. We get opening credits after that screen. Uh, we get, you know, names. And again, there are all these roles that we haven't typically seen in other video games. We haven't seen credits like this. Um, you know, in a typical, think about a typical arcade game and even a lot of computer games, at this time or within a few years, we're all developed by one or two people. But this has a complete opening title screen with animators listed, directors listed, the people who wrote uh, the original score, the people that wrote the soundtrack, which is different <laughs> than the people who wrote the original score. Uh, again, we have the executive producer. We have, uh, you know, all these different roles. So it really, uh, again, sells This idea that that this is more than a game, that this is going to be a movie-like experience. Now, once we move past the credits, we get our first choice. Uh, We are presented with the option of choosing which Saxon we are going to play throughout Defender of the Crown. There are four to choose from. We have Wilford of Ivanhoe, Jeffrey Longsword. Cedric of Rotherwood and Wolfric the Wild. Now, in the if you have the manual, uh, you can look at, and I believe even on the title screen it shows you, uh, their three different stats and it will show you if they are not good at them or good or above average or whatever. So, um, <clears throat> this is one of those games where, um, The different, each one has slightly different stats that will help you along the way. One is a little bit better at sword play. Um, One is a little bit better at jousting and so on and so forth. So if you have a particular weakness in this game, you can pick the character that might give you a little bit of an advantage in one of those games that will be uh, coming up. Once you uh, choose your character, um, oh, it says here, um, your, your stats are leadership Jousting and sword play. So those would be, uh, the three, um, attributes, you know, that would be slightly different between uh, the characters. So once you, Select your character. Uh, we get some more text. We get a little bit of backstory in case you didn't read the box. We set the scene. It tells us the year. Uh, it's in the 1100s. It tells us that uh, things are not going good in England by not going good, meaning that uh, the king has been killed. And we find ourselves in Sherwood Forest uh, talking face to face with Robin of Loxley. Now, it's interesting that most most parts of this game don't call him Robin Hood. They call him Robin of Luxley. Now I know in the movies that he refers to himself as Robin of Luxley. I don't know if there's any sort of copyright reason where they wouldn't say Robin Hood, but in the game for the most part, he's uh, referred to as Robin of Luxley. When we go to Sherwood forest and talk to Robin, we get our first cool screen. Uh, We get this shot of Sherwood forest. We get a cool graphic of Robin Hood standing there, and we're talking to him. We can see him uh, off to the side. And there's a couple of things going on. Uh, Obviously, we're being presented information in a movie-like format. Uh, It's not just... Uh, you know, text appears on the screen, you read it, press spacebar next. It's not like that. It's like a title card comes up. We read some text. We hear some music playing. The screen fades to black. Music is playing. Then the graphic comes up of Robin and Sherwood, and then music keeps playing and it fades off. Um, But one of the ingenious things that this is doing is that it's hiding the game's loading times because this game has a lot of, of disc access. Um, but it hides it often in a way where uh, the screen may go black and it's playing music and then it fades into another scene. So it feels it's slowed down the pace of presenting information to us. But by doing that, we kind of, uh, we accept it because it feels more like a movie than, um, a game. The problem is when you play it uh, repeated times, and you want to get to the game parts, and you can't because you're slowed down by this cinematic experience. But, um, anyway, this is the first of many, uh, really neat screens that we get to see this picture of, uh, Robin Hood. Once we're done with that, and we move to the actual game, and the game screen comes up, we're kind of presented with a lot of information. It's almost an overwhelming amount of statistics. Uh, We have uh, our rating. We have uh, the stats of our army. We have our income. We have how much gold. We have the option to transfer soldiers to and from our garrison. There's a lot going on here that we we have to manage this and move to eventually the map. Now, the map screen is... Uh, where each round takes place. And the best way to think of defender of the crown is a board game. It's a board game where every player gets a turn, you get to make your choices. And then when you're done with your turn, the other five NPCs, you'll be playing against two other Saxons who in theory are your teammates and three Normans who are definitely not on your side. Uh, and all of those five people also get a turn. So if you kind of think of it like a board game within, um, that, you know, each move may lead to, uh, a mini game, that's, that's really the way it is. It's just kind of disguised, uh, in the way that it's presented, uh, but once you get to the map screen, uh, there are different options. You will see you can, it just says things like tournament conquest, go raiding, buy army, read map or pass. Um, now, um, building your army is important, <laughs> uh, because you can attack people at any part during your turn, but you can also get attacked during other people's, uh, Turns so it's kind of difficult to explain this game in a um like an order, like a specific order, because there's so many things that could happen. At any given time. So really you have to look at the map at the very beginning to understand what's going on. Now, the three Saxons of which you are one of the three Saxons uh, will be located at the top of the map and the Normans will be at the bottom of the map. So you kind of have to look at the map, see where you are, see where your guys are, see where their guys are, and also where there are castles, Uh, because that's ultimately the point of this game is to take over, defeat all the Normans is the goal and to possess all their castles. Now there is a weird side thing that can happen because sometimes the, your other Saxons who are your brothers in arms in England may also take over and possess one of the castles at which point you'll have to fight him (laughs) because you have to ultimately possess uh, take ownership of all the Norman castles. So uh, it's a little bit strange how that works, but that's essentially the goal. Uh, when you look at the map, you could kind of understand that, that that's what's going on. You're going to have to move more or less downward on this map and move towards the Norman castles while building up an army and while attacking other armies to knock them down while also defending attacks from other incoming uh, armies. It, it's a lot like risk. Uh, this, this, the, the major portion of the game, the the board game version uh, or the board game portion of the game, I should say feels um, a lot like risk. Now, all of those other options I mentioned like uh, starting a tournament or uh, going on a conquest can lead to mini games for your turn. So one of the ones is jousting and I believe on the menu, it just says tournament. So that means you're hosting a jousting tournament. So you can host a jousting tournament on your land and representatives from all the other uh, castles will arrive and you will have a jousting tournament. So you could spend your turn doing this. Now you could choose Um, at the beginning of the tournament, whether you are jousting for fame or if you're jousting for land. So this is like, you can bet territories that you own, uh, to try to, or to try to gain another territory. So you can uh, do that. Now the jousting portion of the game is simple in theory, but kind of hard to do. Uh, and the way that you do it is use a joystick and you have to aim the Lance and hit the center of your opponent's shield. Uh, if you're off center and they're more on center, you'll lose. If you don't hit the shield and they hit you, you'll lose. Um, and it's a first person view. So it's it, they're coming at you, you're going at them. Um, one of the worst things you could do is hit the horse. Uh, if you hit the horse, it is seen as a, a disrespectful or dishonorable uh, way to end a joust and you will lose the joust uh, immediately. You're ejected. But if you win the joust, um, don't worry. You got to do it two more times. You have to actually win three jousts to work your way up uh, the, the little mini competition uh, to um, to actually win the tournament. Now, the controls, the the way that your lance is facing and bounces and your controls are affected by your character's ability. So if if you're having trouble getting through this particular mini game, whenever you start, look at the four players and there's one that their jousting ability is excellent. So pick that guy and it will make jousting easier. Unfortunately, it makes um, sword play and building up armies harder. <laughs> so there there's no there's no great uh, there's no character that's great at everything, unfortunately. So you kind of have to Figure out what you're good at and um, and supplement the rest with uh, uh, you know better abilities on your character. Now another option from the map is conquest, and so you can pick an enemy's land to attack, more or less. Now depending on what's on that land, uh, you may or may not. It depend that will de- uh, depend on what game you're divided to. If there's a castle. Uh, then I think that's where you go to the mini game where there's a catapult. And so then, uh, if you have catapults, then your catapult will pull up and you have to, you'll have to aim and you'll have to throw rocks at their castle wall. And I think you have to hit the wall six out of 10 times to bust a hole in it. Uh, and then that will allow your army to go in. Uh, but regardless, uh, the, uh, once you go on a, a, a conquest, now your army will go in, uh, and, and raid their castle and you go in and, um, you'll have to do sword fighting. Uh, there's always two guys. I think that you have to sword fight. There's one like in the, the main room and then there'll be one like in the, um, I don't know, like in the guards room or something like that guy's harder. Um, it's really hard. <laughs> it's harder than it should be. Um, because I've been playing video games for a long time and the little guy does not react like he should react when I'm playing a video game. Uh, it almost feels like you're sword fighting underwater or in molasses or something like the reactions really slow. Um, and when you try to attack, like the timing they move and then your attack is delayed and then you're doing something you're thrusting when the guy has already moved and going to hit you in the head. Um, it's, it's just much harder then you would think it would be. Um, so, th- you know, if, if you're, um, and I, I think I might've misspoke. I think this is, um, uh, I i don't know if this is under, uh, this is what you do go raiding. I think I said this is under conquest, but th- this is what you go raiding um, because you have to beat the two guards. And once you get past the two guards, uh, you will win gold. So you could once you get past them, you could steal all your enemies gold from their castle. But um, it's just really hard I just can't stress that enough. It's much harder than you think it should be. Um, the, the, the conquest is kind of different where, um, it kind of shows just like a visual representation of like one or two of your soldiers and one or two of their soldiers. Uh, and and it's more strategy. You have to say like, do you, you know, it's constantly asking you, do you want to fight regularly? Do you want to be more aggressive? Do you want to run away? Um, run away. Uh, and so, you know, that's, a, another uh, thing that you could do. Now there is another, I know I'm hitting you with a lot here because there's a lot of things that can happen all in your turn. Um, but you can, uh, every now and then one of the uh, ladies, one of the beautiful ladies that was mentioned on the back of the box will get uh, kidnapped and the game will say, Hey, this lady got kidnapped. You want to go save her? And you can say yes or no. Now, if you say no. I don't think anything bad actually happens. You just go, well, such is life. You got kidnapped. Sorry, lady. But if you do want to rescue her, um, it's basically exactly like the raid uh, portion. It's the same minigame. It's the same raid minigame. So you have to you go into the castle. You do a sword fight. You got to go to the next room. You do another uh, sword fight. But then uh, you get to the next room and you will rescue the kidnapped woman. And then you get this cutscene of you approaching the woman. And then you get this really, uh, like really detailed picture of this lady. And it's sort of animated and like her eyes kind of blank and stuff. And she talks to you. And then there's like a silhouette where she's taking her clothes off and you guys kind of make out a little bit. It's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> like I just, I just met a lady. I was just trying to do a good deed and, And save you from being kidnapped, you know? Uh, but anyway, what happens is that you marry her. And so then when you go back to, uh, your rounds, uh, now her picture is there too as your wife. And that kind of boosts some of your attributes. I think your leadership skill goes up, which helps you retain people from your army and some other stuff like that. So, um, it's, it's, it's a good thing to do, but, It just feels a little weird. I don't like it. Um, but anyway, uh, so again, as I mentioned before, the goal to win the game, you have to, uh, possess all three of the Norman's castles. So all the Normans have to be defeated. Um, and if a Saxon Lord has moved onto one of the Norman castles, you're going to have to take that from your buddy. Uh, so, uh, and when I say buddy, I mean your Saxon brethren Not your buddy who's playing this with two players or three players or four players, because even though this game is literally rife for a multiplayer situation where you would pass the joystick for each person's turn, um, it's just one player, which is kind of weird. It's more than kind of weird. It's kind of like really weird. It's kind of like you would have to, to take that out because it's so obvious that that should be an option in this game. I really don't get it. Um, It's pretty obvious that this game was originally designed for the Amiga. And the reason why I say that is because it's really obvious that this game was designed for a system that uses a mouse. Uh, Even when you move to select text, there's a cursor that hovers over the text and it just feels like you should be playing this game with a mouse, especially like today, like in, you know, modern times. It's so obvious that this should be a mouse game. Now, uh, I have played the Amiga version and not all parts of the game are translate well. Like, for example, on the Amiga, you do the sword fighting and stuff with the mouse. And I don't think that works as well that way. I think that's, you know, something that's better suited for a joystick. So, um, so not everything is better with the mouse, but certainly, you know, the catapult game seems, uh, feels better with the mouse. The jousting feels better with the mouse. Um, and the menu system and moving around the map kind of feels better with the mouse. So pretty much everything (laughs) except for the sword fighting, take away the sword fighting. And this is a much better mouse game, uh, than it is a joystick game, which is what we have, uh, for the Commodore 64. Um, you know, I wrote some notes down here under controls. I mentioned the mouse. Uh, I mentioned that the sword fighting a lot of times doesn't even feel like you're controlling the guy. Like it just feels, um, uh like like things have happened <laughs> before or that they're happening. Mean, it's just it's very delayed um and yeah the the, the catapult is kind of hard to do the joust is hard to do with the joystick the controls are not this game's strong suit which is to say the part of the game that you play is very hard to play um which is not not a good sign um <clears throat> in general I would say Defender of the Crown is an overwhelming game. Uh, When you first start playing it, there's so much going on. And not only is there so much going on, but... How can I explain this? There's a lot going on, but also it feels like nothing's going on. Um, In other words... You feel like there's a lot going on, like you're buying armies and this and that, but it's hard to understand what that's affecting. And then all you want to do is the mini games. You know, I'm just like, just hold a tournament every round. I just want to joust. I just want to do the sword fighting. That's the only part I want to do. I don't want to play risk, um, <laughs> which is bad because that's kind of what this game is. Um, so, especially as you're watching the other players go through, it just seems like there's a, a lot of disc loading and a lot of waiting, uh, you know, in between, there's a lot of time in between, um, those little mini games. Uh, another problem with the mini games is that a lot of times they're over very quickly. I mean, the, the jousting, if you're not good at it, you know, you say you want to have a tournament, you get a screen, you get this cool, uh, super cool picture of these trumpeters, which was like the famous graphic from this game. Uh, There's more loading, you get information for the loading, and then all of a sudden you're jousting and it lasts three seconds and you're dead. (laughs) So it's like a lot of buildup to these games that don't last very long. And I know I said it just now and I said it before too, but it really bears repeating that um, there's a lot of loading in this game, so if you're playing this on a modern solution, if you're playing it on an emulator, if you're playing it on uh, something where you could speed up the loading times, or, or uh, you know, even something like from uh, uh, RAM or on a U64, something like that, then it may not seem uh, quite as painful, but uh, it's painful. Um, I mean, it, there's a lot of graphics, there's a lot of game information being loaded in and out of memory, and, and there's no way around it. That's that's how you have to do it. Um, and again, uh, you know, if you take the mini games out, then it's kind of like risk. I mean, that's kind of what this game is. It's just, what's funny is there's so many layers on top of it that it doesn't feel like risk, uh, until you're playing it. And then you go, oh, this is kind of risk with mini games. But when you see other people play it, or if you've only watched videos, you go, wow, there's a lot of stuff to to do here. But then once you're playing it, you realize there's not a lot of stuff to do here. <laughs> I think I'm doing a bad job. I think (laughs) sometimes you're the catapult and sometimes you're the wall. You know, there's some things you can do to make this game a little easier. One is uh, picking the character again that has the stats that will help you throughout the game. Um, You know, once you've played once or twice, you can see what your uh, weak points are. And uh, just choose a character that's better in those, and that will help you uh, get through the thing. Uh, If a woman needs rescuing from being kidnapped, you always want to do that, especially if you're any good at the sword fighting, because, again, uh, you'll get to marry her, and uh, that will help you, your statistics in the game. But if you really want to play this game you should go to Google and look up game FAQs and look up strategy guide for defender of the crown, because there are many, many people who are good at this game and they will tell you, you know, what to build your army to what you should try to take over, what lands you should do, what order you should do things. So uh, there are strategies that will help you get through the game. Uh, better than what I do, which is just pick jousting over and over because that's the one that's the most fun for me. (laughs) Uh, I do have more to say about Defender of the Crown, but I've worked up an appetite. So let's take a break, head upstairs to the Sprite Castle dining hall and have a quick snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. (laughs) Welcome to the Sprite Castle Dining Hall, and joining me today in the Dining Hall are Patreon supporters Damian Frank, Paul Murano and Robot Doctor 82 If you'd like to join me in the Dining Hall on a future episode, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and purchase a meal ticket. Uh, this evening in the Dining Hall, we are serving up turkey legs, those big comically oversized chunks of meat you often find for sale at medieval fairs. Uh, These things always seem like a better idea (laughs) than they do uh, in the real world if you've ever had one. Uh, They're not the easiest thing to eat, and a lot of times if you get them at a thing like a fair or a medieval fair, they're sometimes dry uh, and not very good. Um, I will tell you that the first time I ever had one of those giant turkey legs was at... A medieval fair. There's a local medieval fair that my dad took us to when I was pretty young. I was like probably 11 or 12. Um, I remember all the vendors being there. I remember the food things and and him buying us those giant turkey legs. Um, They had a real world uh, melee where guys in armor beat each other up with um, swords and morning stars and maces. And I don't know how Real, those weapons were because I was a little kid, so maybe they were taped up swords or something like that. But I certainly remember the sound of those things hitting their metal armor, so that it wasn't like they were Styrofoam weapons, there had to have been something to them. Uh, my strongest memory of that medieval fair, other than the turkey leg, is that they had a life size chessboard and they had people in costume standing on the chessboard, and two people playing chess and so they would say okay this new pawn you move forward two steps and the guy would step forward i mean this is on a large outdoor uh chess board and you know i don't remember i believe this must have been before i ever saw battle chess because it made such a huge impression on me and the pieces when the people got to uh you know, the same square. They didn't fight. The other person just left the chessboard. Uh, in retrospect, looking back on this, I think what a brave idea to plan this. Uh, the medieval fairs in Oklahoma are typically in April or May, which means it could be 100 degrees or it could be freezing. It could be tornado weather. Uh, it could be raining. There's no telling what uh, uh, the weather would be doing. So uh, it, it just seemed like such a fun thing to witness. Uh, As a kid, as I stood there with my giant turkey leg (laughs) at the Medieval Fair. But um, in retrospect, I think, uh, what a terrible day it would be to stay. Like, what if you're the bishop who doesn't get to move for 20 minutes? (laughs) You just have to stand there uh, on the chessboard. That doesn't sound like much fun to me at all. Um, While everybody is eating, I see everybody's got their turkey legs over there. Uh, You and I have a few minutes to chat about what I've been up to. Uh, as you can tell, I've changed the format of the show slightly. I've kind of actually changed my podcast schedule a little bit. I've been talking about this on Patreon, so those people all know what's up. But um, uh, I'll be definitely be doing at least one episode of Sprite Castle a month. I'll definitely be doing at least one episode of You Don't Know Flack a month. I'm going to cut back on Cactus Flax for a while. I'm going to cut back on like a Doss. Uh Those are fun shows, but these shows are kind of my bread and butter And um, I just kind of took on too much. Um, I've been posting my Randall Rob videos. If you've been watching those or if you listen, if you subscribe to the main podcast feed, you've been seeing those show up in the main feed. Um, They're also video versions. So if you go to YouTube.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You can see all my Rando Rob videos. That is a show that I originally did just for my Patreon supporters where I show off things that I've collected over the years. So uh, anything that is in my personal collection in my computer room or or, uh, the garage or anywhere is fair game. So you never know what item I'm going to show off uh, on Retro Rob. But I've had a lot of fun doing that. I put 23 episodes up in January along with... Uh, you know, Sprite Castle and, and You Don't Know Flack and some videos and um, about a dozen Patreon posts. So I've been pretty busy. Um, but if you only subscribe to Sprite Castle, it might not seem uh, like I've been very busy. <laughs> um, I've also been busy uh, playing some new Commodore 64 games. Uh, I tried out uh, Castle Shadowgate. That is a new, it's a point and click Commodore sixty four adventure. Uh, it was originally released for the Macintosh, and then was ported over to the Commodore sixty four by Donnie Russell the second. It almost feels more like a text adventure with the words that you can click. Uh, the The it's, it doesn't seem like the screens aren't as animated. Like when I think of point and click adventure, I think of something like king's quest or labyrinth or one of those a maniac mansion it's not really like that it's more where you just pick the commands uh for things uh what you want the game to do there's a walkthrough on youtube and it looks like you can beat the whole thing in about 15 minutes or less Uh, so it's not a super long game but it's been pretty fun I, i played that for a while uh, I also tried Nico's Run, which is a side-scrolling run-and-jump game. Uh, I always compare these, uh, you know, a runner, I guess I would say a runner game. Uh, you're Nico the dog, and you run and you jump over obstacles. There's a UFO that chases you and tries to get you. Um, it's kind of mindless entertainment, but that's pretty fun. Uh, and then I was playing uh, Veggies Versus the Undead, which is uh, may sound very similar, and there's a reason, to uh, Plants vs. Zombies. Um, it's a um, it's, it's a Commodore 64 port of Plants vs. Zombies. I think Plants vs. Zombies is the first game, the first iPad or iOS game that I ever remember seeing a commercial for. I remember my kids played it, and I was like, okay, Plants vs. Zombies. Like, I had seen iPhone games and stuff, and iPhone games to me were games that... You played for 30 seconds and they were over a minute. You know, they they had to last as long as I would be in the bathroom. (laughs) As long as the game lasted that long. uh, I was good. And um, uh, Plants vs. Zombies was like the first one that I remember... I mean, I know there were others, but that was the first one that was just like, wow, this is a big... This is a big game, you know? And I remember later getting it. I think we got it as um, uh, DLC on the PS3, I think. And my kids were thrilled. So, um, yeah, uh, if you liked the original Plants vs. Zombies, go check out Veggies vs. Undead for the Commodore 64. Looks like everybody is enjoying their meal and having a good time, so this is a good spot for old Jack Flack to escape back down to the dungeon and get back to the episode at hand. The reviews of Defender of the Crown are very interesting. Let's talk about the reviews that were released or written when the game first came out. Australian Commodore Review gave Defender of the Crown 96%. Zap Magazine gave it 94%. Zap said, it's an experience which should not be missed by any disk drive owner, period. Your Commodore magazine gave it 90%. Uh, Commodore user also gave it 90 and said, it's totally brilliant and one of the best games to date on the 64. It's deep, absorbing, addictive, and amazing. I'm going to repeat that. It's deep, absorbing, addictive, and amazing. Now, that is a positive review. Uh, Computer and Video Games Magazine also gave it 90%, and the lowest one at that time that I found was Commodore Disk User, which gave it 80%. Now, 80% is not 96%, right? So let's read the summary of their review. Defender of the Crown is an excellent conversion of the original Amiga game that features some great graphics, which are turbo loaded from disc to keep the action going. You've read about the game. Now play it exclamation <laughs> mark. I don't read anything bad in there for only 80%. So maybe there's more uh, hidden within the review, but let's fast forward a few years. Again, Defender of the Crown came out in 1987 for the Commodore 64. Computer Gaming World reviewed the game in 1990 and gave it 50%. They said it feels like a bunch of mini-games connected with storyboards. All Game Guide reviewed the game in 1998 and also gave it 50%. They said so many great features are included in Defender of the Crown. Unfortunately, the most important aspect, the battles, are the worst part of the game. They add too much confusing and frustration to the gameplay. Hmm. So what went wrong with these reviews? Why were the initial reviews so high and reviews just a few years later really bad? Uh, I can tell you from my own high school experience that 50% is failing. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes when I get to my personal memory section of the episode. Uh, I mentioned that the original port of Defender of the Crown was released for the Amiga and not the original port. The original version was released for the Amiga in 1986. But in 1987, there were releases for the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II GS, the Atari ST, the CDI, the CDTV, DOS, uh, the Game Boy Advance, Jaguar, Macintosh, NES, PC, and the ZX Spectrum, in addition to, obviously, the Commodore 64. Some of those ports are more faithful than others. I think the original uh, EGA port uh, on DOS, the four-color EGA version, is considered to be pretty bad. Uh, It has four color graphics and the sound comes from the PC speaker. Uh, The Nintendo version is not very favorable. I don't think it looks terrible, but normally it does not get uh, high ratings. uh, But the 16-bit versions like uh, the 2GS, the Atari ST, and obviously the Amiga and the Commodore 64 all typically got high reviews at that time. Um, now there was a Defender of the Crown Two uh, released in 1993, but only on the CD TV and the Amiga CD32. Which, of course, if you have an Amiga emulator and uh, you can find the ISO, you could try uh, Defender of the Crown Two out. But um, most people say stick with Defender of the Crown One. <laughs> uh, later years, we saw versions for iOS. We saw versions for Android. Uh, if you go to the CinemaWare website. There's a browser playable version of Defender of the Crown if you want to try it out. So there have been lots of re-releases of the game throughout the years. Uh, in 2014, they released a Cinemaware Anthology for the PC. And on that version, you could play either the Amiga or the PC version of several Cinemaware games, uh, including Defender of the Crown. So you can play, if you want to try out the Amiga version or the, I think it's the, um, Not the, I think it's the EGA, not the CGA version. So they released multiple versions for DOS. So the EGA would have had slightly better uh, sound and graphics. And I think that's the version that is included on the CinemaWare anthology. Uh, They rebooted the game in 2003 and it was called Robin Hood Defender of the Crown. And that appeared on the PlayStation 2, uh, the original Xbox and uh, for Windows. Uh, And then the game was rebooted again uh, with a title called Defender of the Crown Heroes Live Forever. And this was in 2007. Um, And uh, uh, it has some of the original gameplay of Defender of the Crown, but it has been updated with lots of new features like cards that help you do things and stuff like that. So it's a similar idea. It's a reimagining, let's say, of the original Defender of the Crown and worth playing if you like the original. If you are interested in owning an original copy of the game for the Commodore 64, all you got to do is head right over to eBay. There are two complete boxed copies available right now for Buy It Now. One is $50.00. The other one is $125, so depending on the listing, you may have to shop around to find a good price, but there are deals to be had out there for about the price of a modern game today. Uh, There's also a listing for a disc only, just a floppy disc by itself for $35. I checked uh, for completed auctions and found the last two boxed copies of Defender of the Crown for the Commodore 64 sold for $39 and $66. So again, you might have to wait if you really want a boxed copy of this sitting on the shelf uh, or want an original to play, but you could, there are still uh, uh, good deals to be found out there online. Now let's get into my personal memories of Defender of the Crown. My first memory of Defender of the Crown was not of the game, but of the picture of the trumpeters. Now, this is a graphic that gets loaded whenever you're going to host a joust competition, and there are several trumpeters in line blowing through their trumpets, and they um, have—I don't know the the correct term, but it's like a flag that hangs down off the trumpet showing the coat of arms— Uh, I think I might have seen that in a magazine, and and I could not believe it was a computer graphic. I couldn't believe that that was something that had been drawn or created on a computer. It was unbelievable compared to the graphics that I was used to seeing at the time. It was. uh, I just remember telling people, like, that picture just sold me on the entire game. I thought it was the most amazing picture I had ever seen in a game in my life. Uh, so I ultimately downloaded a copy of the game. I did not buy the game, um, but I downloaded it and I went through the introduction and it was amazing. Uh, it was like a movie experience. There were credits. I got to meet Robin of Luxley for gosh sake. Uh, you know, I went to Sherwood forest. I got to do all this stuff. Uh, it, it was just, it really was like a movie, a cinematic experience on my Commodore 64. The graphics were awesome. And the sound and the music was, was great. Uh, and then I get to the map and I was like, uh, huh, like a risk, I guess. Like I move armies around. Like I don't really know what to do. Like I buy some, buy some dudes, I guess, you know, you kind of move around and, You know, people take their turns, and you go, "Uh, okay. Uh, And then eventually, you know, there's a a joust, and you go, oh, okay, jousting, you know, and there's a lot of loading and and the cool graphics, and you get to see the trumpet picture and all this stuff. And then you joust for like five seconds, and then you're dead. You go, huh, I guess I didn't do that right. Is there there a (laughs) do-over? Can I try that again? Uh, But you can't, you know and then uh, other people have their turn and stuff's going on and this and things are happening, you know, and then a little kind of game pops up and and you're sword fighting. You're like, ah, oh, I'm a, I'm a sword fighting dude. All right. This, um, uh, my guy's not really moving so well, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, I think I'm dead. <laughs> I tried to do some stabbing, but, uh, seems like I'm dead. And then you, you go back to the map and, and, uh, you move around a little bit more, you know? And then, and then I remember like, oh, you got the, the castle seeds, you know, and this, this seems like it ought to be fun. You know, I mean, what's, what's more fun than throwing rocks, you know, at a, at a big wall, you know, and, and, uh, that just didn't seem very fun, you know? And so over, over time, um, I ended up calling this game. I, I ended up, well, I had a term that I made up one time and I called it dragon's lair syndrome, uh, and dragon's lair syndrome to me. That means you've got a game that has great graphics and you've sold it on this, on the graphics and the appearance or the experience, you know, but the, the gameplay itself is just not that much fun. You know, that's kind of how dragon's Lair is. I mean, it looks cool and people crowd around in the arcade to see dragon's Lair. but man, when you played it, you're like, hey, it's not that fun, you know? And, and certainly the fifth or 10th time you die instantly, you know, it's just not that much fun. You know what I mean? And this game is kind of like that. Like it looks so good and it should play better than it actually plays and it's like the mini games were like the last thought. They were they're almost like an afterthought. Like they had they wanted to make a cinematic experience and they did that and they spent all the time on these graphics and they did that and at some point they were like we don't have a game. You know, and so they threw these action sequences in there And didn't play test them enough or something. I don't know, but they're they're just not that fun, you know. Even when you get good at them, they're still not fun, you know. That and that's the problem. Um, you know, the the other half of the game is the strategy part, and again, like I said, is you don't get enough real time feedback. Like you could build armies and you could move your garrison around and you could transfer people and all this, but. You never really get an idea if that's helping. Like, is that helping? Is it hurting? Is it? I don't know. You know, you're just kind of randomly doing stuff. It'd be like if I'm a general today in a war field, in a, a war field where there is no cell phones or radios, <laughs> and I'd be like, move these guys here. And you go. How'd that work out? I don't know. We never heard from anybody. It, it feels like that. It just feels like I'm making random changes, you know, and the real crime is as good as this game looks. And I'm telling you, this game looks fantastic. But if you want to play a risk game, I had Lords of conquest, which was an electronic arts game. And that is a way better game of risk than this is. It's, it's just much, uh, and I'm generalizing. I mean, it's not really risk, but it is where you move around a map and have to take over things and fight for land and stuff. So there's a lot of games. I'm just generically using the term risk, but Lords of conquest is a much better game like that. And if you, like this idea of like having to go like travel around and and go to different things and have tournaments and all that. Pirates from Microprose is a way better game than Defender of the Crown. You know, in Pirates, um, when you are on the open seas and you run into someone else's ship and you're firing your cannons and you're maneuvering around in the ocean trying not to get hit by return cannon fire, that's fun. You know, and the, the games in Defender of the Crown just aren't fun. Uh, and then when you, you go to each city and you trade and you buy stuff, I mean, I don't need to actually, I think, uh, I reviewed pirates on uh, episode number one of Sprite Castle. So if you want to hear about pirates, go listen to episode number one. But, um, you know, the, the things that happen in that game are just fun, you know? And, and I, the other thing is I know what's happening. Like when I move, when I buy and sell, if I buy whiskey low and sell it high, I know what I'm doing. Like I'm making money and you know, this, that. And I just never feel like in this game, when I'm making all these choices, I don't really feel like I'm, I know what I'm affecting all the time, you know? So, um, uh, so that's the problem is that, uh, you know, there are other strategy games that are better and there are other action games. There are a lot of other action games uh, that are better than defender of the crown. So I, again, I know I'm, I'm kind of beating a dead horse, but um, uh, this game looks great, but man, it's just frustrating to play. For graphics, I give Defender of the Crown 5 out of 5 swashbuckles. I mean, there is no better game at the time than Defender of the Crown, uh, graphics-wise. For music, I give it 4 out of 5 swashbuckles. Uh, the music is really good. It doesn't push the SID chip to its limits, uh, but it is, it is very good. Uh, for sound effects, I give it 3 out of 5 swashbuckles. It's okay, um, but that's not really the game's strong point. Uh, it's not offensive, but it's not great. But overall, I hope I don't get stabbed for this, I'm going to give Defender of the Crown 3 out of 5 swashbuckles. You know, Defender of the Crown, it's a great game in every way except for the game part. <laughs> you know, for those willing to put in the hours, uh, there's some frustratingly hard action sequences, and they're mixed in with a complicated strategy game, but both of those types of gameplay have just been done better in other games. Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at RobOHara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash RobCast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord. Or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. Patreon supporters like Boar's Head Tavern BBS, Retro Trace, and Graham W. Vebke help pick this episode's game. If you'd like to read behind-the-scenes blog posts, watch weekly videos, gain access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and receive other additional perks, head on over to Patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and sign up today. Support Tear Start at just $2 a month. Sprite Castle is available on all major podcast providers, including Apple Podcasts and the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. More information on all my podcasts are available at podcast.robohara.com. News and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to knocking out Normans, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. And in 2007, they rebooted the game again as Defender of the Crown, Herpes... (laughs) Wow, Spellcheck changed Heroes to Herpes. (laughs) Defender of the Crown, Herpes live forever. (laughs) I'd play it.